0: Welcome to this podcast from Adelaide Place Baptist Church. We are a community of disciples, apprentices of Jesus, who live and work in the city of Glasgow, and it's our vision to join God in the renewal of all things. Our discipleship to Jesus is for all of our lives, so as well as listening to this podcast, we'd love for you to join us on a Sunday morning, or get involved in one of our missional communities, which are across the city throughout the week. Our prayer is that you encounter Jesus in some way through this podcast. More information can be found at apbc.net. Although Genesis 2 may have seen the complete and picture-perfect scenario, in many ways the first recipients of this Genesis scroll will have known that it left many ends untied, such as why don't we live in such a lush garden now? It all sounded so lovely, so beautiful, all to be celebrated, but how did tending the ground turn out to be so hard? Where's all this goodness and very goodness that we heard? And I think these questions may have their appeal to us as well. I mean, how's your week been? Paradise? every day, or thorns, thistles, sweat on your brow, difficulty, strife. And I think if Genesis was to be made into a film, I don't think it has been yet, but if it had been made into a film, some change of music would have been introduced around verse 16 of chapter 2, which was the command not to eat lest you die. There was just a little sense in the narrative that Things The equilibrium was about to be disturbed, about to be broken and disrupted. And so I think we can be sure of one thing. In terms of just being here and trying to immediately bridge some context with the the first recipients of this text, that the world they experienced was not a bed of roses with everything just plain sailing. Their world, like our world, was thorns and thistles. It was difficult terrain. And so I wanted to reflect, give this title of the message if you want that, is how things go wrong and what to do about it. How things go wrong and what to do, because things, things will go wrong. I was golfing last Monday. Don't judge, it's something pastors are allowed to do on Mondays. I was playing with one of my good friends, one, a golf partner who I play with regularly. I like playing with him. I usually win. It makes me feel good. It's not Scott. That also is true when I play with Scott. But we were playing golf and he was one to prep because he was going away at the end of the week on a golf holiday with three other friends to play in a proper serious competition overseas, invest his money. And so we were practicing, we were playing, and we were getting to about, I think it was the fourth or fifth hole, and we got got into a conversation about chipping and and pitching, which is the shots you play around the green, little short shots around the green, just in case you're not familiar with the world of golf. And I quickly realized that actually, I actually could help him here. I I had a role to play as as being uh, the, the insightful one. Because he was a wee bit confused about how to manage certain shots around the green. I suddenly realized he is walking into a disaster this week. If he thinks the golf course is just this kind place that's just going to land the ball neatly on the green. And I was like, mate, there's there's three shots you need around the green. And and you 100% need these if you're going to be successful in any way. Um, when you're away, one's a low one, you need this club, one's a mid trajectory, you need this club, and one's the, if there's water, a bunker, you need to fly it high, and this is the club you use. And he came back uh, and he beat his pals and he was like, and sent him a YouTube video, of course, that's where you learn all your good stuff. And I felt like, do you know what? I felt like I'd done done him a bit of a service because he was walking blindly into some very difficult terrain, and he needed, he needed some help. And of course, it made me think about the terrain of this story, because my mind relates to everything to the golf. The, 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 the difficult terrain, and, and I want to, as we look, explore this difficult terrain that the story of the fall brings, I want us to land with three things that we, we desperately need as a Christian response to this doctrine of the fall, because things will be difficult. The terrain will not be just give you everything. It is going to be difficult, and we are going to need things when things don't go the way we want them to, when we stumble, when we fall, because we will. We will this week, and as we experience a fallen world. So we will get to that. Um, But we're thinking about how things go wrong and what to do about it. This section, as Daniel alluded to, is termed by many as the fall. Was it a fall? A fall sounds accidental, doesn't it? Um, like that maybe they were pushed, when actually in the story, it's much less that they were pushed and much more that they, they jumped, they, they chose. But nevertheless, it's, it's called, referred to as the fall. And famously, of course, this text brings up countless questions about the origins of evil, of all sorts of evil, natural evil, and, and all different types about this original sin idea in terms of how it all works. How did this condition that we recognize, how did it work? How did it get passed on to you and I? And there's different explanations of how that works. But the serpent just kind of appears in verse one. This little snake just appears and described as a crafty one, like a, like a trickster is how presented in this story. And of course, Judeo-Christian history would later make links that we are maybe familiar with with this little snake creature to the dragon and the Satan of the book of Revelation that if you remember, we reflected upon. Again, Paul in 2 Corinthians has the cunning serpent reckoned to be the Satan. But for sure, the original audience, that wasn't what they were thinking. That's not where their heads were at that particular time. And whilst we could probably have some fun going off on the origins of evil, how evil works, and how we all inherit this condition. I want to suggest we just follow the text quite simply at this stage, because the text is simply making clear that the exact origin of evil does not reside or originate in God. In fact, it's going further, it's saying any evil exists in a movement away. Humanity is a movement away from God. And it's just making that very clear. And furthermore, in Genesis 3, verse 1, it indicates very explicitly that whatever we are dealing with here with regards to this serpent, that this serpent-talking snake creature is a created being and is nowhere near on a par with the Yahweh God. And so the text makes that very clear. Evil is not from God, and it's the movement away. And, 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 but this serpent is not on a par with Yahweh God. Nevertheless, this talking snake is effective to a degree at making things go wrong. How? What's the serpent's methodology? Well, it's probably well known to many of us. Craftily, the serpent's first move in this scene, first of all, with the woman, is to generate doubt and distortion in God's command. That's move one, to generate doubt and distortion in God's command. It says, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And there's already a a distorting in the command of Yahweh God, who is more than precise in his command and only required the specific tree of good and evil to be avoided. And yet there's a question that creates doubt and, and distorts the original command. And then the woman tries to clarify, but introduces her own curious distortion to Yahweh's command. The woman responds to the snake. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit to the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Where'd that question come from? Where'd that, that prohibition about touching it? was? Did, did that line disappear? Did, did Adam not pass it on accurately or, or was there a confusion at some point But or, or is this like an example, as one person said, or like a pharisaical sort of introduction early on of a, a law on top of the law, a rule on top of the rule that they, they did to try and avoid them you know, offending the actual trend, the law in the first place? Who knows? It's a strange one. But before we know it, we, we can't even blink and we're onto another moment of doubt manufactured by the serpent who swoops in with, you'll certainly not die. And the serpent then attributes negative motivations to Yahweh in his command. The serpent says, for God knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's not looking out for you you entirely here for your good. He's suggesting God's got an ulterior motive that will not satisfy, that this command is not to be something to listen to, that there's an ulterior motive going on in God. He's challenging, is uh, encouraging the woman to doubt the motivation of Yahweh, and then the pattern of sin you might say creeps in right here, as the text says. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight. The Hebrew word here for delight is is something which is intensely desired. Some people have translated as it is lust to the eyes. Not speaking particularly in the sexual realm, but just as something that is so enticing to the eyes. She saw and it looked good to the eyes and she desired it and she took of its fruit and ate it. She saw, she took. Of course, many have tried to pin it all on the woman. Convenient. But the question beckons, where was Adam when all this was going on? Perhaps no need to overthink it for very much time at all, because straight away we're told, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. I think it's a fair conclusion to say that he was there all along, silently colluding with the fall, or the jump, with the choice, the decision they made. And note what this original problem was all about, and how things go wrong. This was not about some abstract, prudish rule keeping, which is the general caricature of the Christian faith. This is, the sort of Ned Flanders, if you're with me, in The Simpsons, sort of goody two-shoes and uppity Christian attitude, which is normally associated with uh, Christianity, certainly in the media that I watch. This is not about abstract British rules. This was about trust, trusting the goodness of God that we had heard about in 1 and 2, and his word. And in some ways, the world's greatest hedonists shouldn't check out at this if they're serious about wanting the good life, wanting the abundant life, wanting to have a a, life in all its fullness. The picture here is not of a choking or restraining word command that just really wants this sort of veneer of piety that makes us sound religious. It was a choice. Trust God for the satisfying good life. Or more precisely, the eternal life of feasting at the tree, as Genesis described it. Trust God for that. Or what's the alternative? Do what's right in your own eyes. Do what's right in your own eyes. And this is the problem, and this is the condition, and this is the way, sadly, as we know the story goes, the man and the woman, who'd be known as Adam and Eve, went, they... what was right in their own eyes. And boy, their eyes were opened, but not necessarily in a good way at all in the way that they maybe hoped. Their actions took them to first experiences of fear, of shame, Which immediately they tried to soothe with their own fig sort of mankini bikini thing that didn't really seem to work out for them too well to hide their nakedness. By the way, mankini is probably a word that should never be said in the walls of a church. So we'll just edit that one right out of there. And if you've got one, you can come up later for forgiveness. (laughs) Moving on. She saw she took And doing this leads to all kinds of strife and decay and pain. And eventually, as we know, it leads to them being exiled from the garden and banished to the east, which in the Bible, everything in the east is not good, by the way. You don't want to be east in the Bible. And these three curses are made explicit as a result of this choice of, we'll do things our own way, thank you very much. And it says, okay. Okay. You take yourself out of the blessing and you you bring strife. Here's the strife, here's the curses. Male, female, discord and hierarchy. Not what God blessed, not what God ordained, but now a curse, an outcome of their own making. The disharmony between the sexes. That has been an all too painful trait of the human history. Difficulty and travail in childbirth. Um, I think this can be taken more generally than just the, the pain of childbirth that um it it can just the whole process of of rearing children is is more difficult, and another curse is well thorns and thistles when it comes to work. Can I get an amen please this is ancient, ancient literature. Some of it was written or dated around 10th century BC, some of it 9th century BC, some of it 7th century, and some of it 6th century BC. And yet, how familiar and how strikingly resonant does it feel to to many of us in our world that people, when we do things in our own eyes, we we see these patterns, these strifes. And as far as figurative speech acts go, this is fairly powerful imagery. The tree, the garden, the taking, the snake, like, whatever we think of it, it has got into the psyche of our world that it is the most famous text almost that you could nearly talk about. I, I pretty much guarantee every one of my friends who, who do not uh, who come to church will know exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to eating the apple from the tree. Powerful imagery that has striking relevance today I wonder where your mind naturally goes to to try and make connections into our world today. For some reason, mine went to loads of different places. One, a documentary I watched not so long ago about the real Wolf of Wall Street and the whole financial crash in 2008. Naively, I, I, I remember just navigating all that whole time. We lived in Aberdeen at the time, and I, didn't, I, I thought lots about it. I didn't really think about the underlying causes, Till I watched this documentary on Netflix. I'm not a member of Netflix anymore. Nobody is. But anyway, and I was just like, I cannot believe those people, those bankers, who just did what was right in their own eyes, risking all that money, and caused all these effects. I don't know the ends and outs of it. But it's just was like, Pfft. so what happens when you work with people who just do things for themselves. And... Climate chaos, my mind went to the climate emergency. And just the problem of, that we face, I think, I don't know if you agree with me, you don't have to, of short-termism of so many of the political leaders. The political will is so short-term because people are only in for a certain time when they're elected, and these problems need a long plan and a long solution. We don't need people who will do what's right in their own eyes. We need people who want to solve solutions. And yet, we seem to just find people who will do what's right in their own eyes. My mind went to the failure of public leadership that has been on repeat of people doing what's right in their own eyes. I think we need to not forget. (laughs) Not forget the lies leaders and politicians have made across the war in our own country and what they've let us down. And we just get used to it as if that's just the way things are. And I'm like, that is not good enough for public leadership. And doing what is right in our own eyes. Let's never get used to that. And hence why I genuinely, with all the complicated history of a 70-year reign from a monarchy like the queen, who, in my opinion, stood morally distinct from the common denominator of what we face, often in our nation at the minute. And then, of course, my mind wanders to, well, looking in the mirror. The narrative leaves much unclear, but we're not, I think we aren't invited to get too judgmental about this first couple. There's much ambiguity that remains in this narrative, and it, it's as if it just leaves us with just enough of the sense that if that had been us, If we had been there, would it have been any different? Would it have been any better? Much to think about when we look at ourselves in the mirror and see if there's a pattern there. Coming back to this pattern of sin in Genesis 3 um, for a second time, just to underscore something that I think is important for us to grasp as we read the Hebrew Bible, what we reference often as our Old uh, Testament, which is the pattern, again, of how things go wrong. If you want more examples of that, read your Bible. There's plenty. Um, The the pattern that described in the first couple of days, she saw, she took, and it leads strife. So basically, here's the thing. Prepare to have your hopes dashed time and time again as you read your Bible. People we set up as heroes are more than likely people that would actually be set up to say, they've let us down. In the story of Abraham and Sarah, the whole pursuit of a child, they see their Egyptian slave. They take her and do what is right in their eyes instead of trusting Yahweh for the child they see and take. Aaron around Mount Sinai, well, as he's when he sees the gold of the Israelites and takes it to make a golden calf instead of waiting in trust. And it all goes wrong. Joshua 7, the sins of Achan, he sees the gold of the Canaanites and takes it. The Israelites, they see Saul and take him as their king. And boy, doesn't that go well. And of course, David, King David, the greatest king, he, was on, he sees Bathsheba and he takes her as his own against her will and against, and he obviously disposes of her, of her husband. This is the greatest king that we have in all of, that the Israelites celebrated, the great King David, and yet he was no better than the first Adam. What about his son? In, in Deuteronomy 17, there was a, a, a hope that, there a, a rightful hope that there would be a king who would be set over them in the land. But he, and then there's these instructions that he must not have many horses or return to Egypt or gather many wives. He must have the law in his heart. You can find that in Deuteronomy around 17. So what about King Solomon then? In 1 Kings 10 to 11, it says, Solomon gathered together chariots and horses. He gathered them from Egypt And he gathered many foreign whites. And you're like, no sooner do we get our hopes raised, maybe these people will do the right thing. No, they see, they take, they do what's right in their own eyes. On loop. And it just repeats itself. One basic problem repeated over and over. People who see, take and do what's right in their own eyes and things go wrong, things unwind. When I came to Adelaide Place, I remember being slightly excited and perturbed all in one around. People were reading this book by a guy called Francis Bufford, uh, great name, called Unapologetic. But the thing that got me going was, oh, these people like this book and it's got a swear word in it. I was just getting used to the church, just trying to get a feel for these people. But he's got this great definition of sin, which I will not quote in full. You can read the book. But he talks about He uses it as an acronym. Um, He talks about the human propensity to mess things up. And that's me putting it nicely, just FYI. The human propensity to mess things up. And again, he captures this just strikingly resonant ancient text thing that actually this still manifests in our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, in our churches, wherever Originally, of course, this text was not written to us, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is most definitely and providentially for us today. And I think it's asking as many things, but not least, can you see the first Adam in yourself? The wiring, the circuitry, the propensity. Can you, can you see that in yourself? Can we see that in ourselves? Do you see it in our world? Do you see what happens whenever we go that way? Do you see it? After the transgression, the reader is prepared for a swift and terrible annihilation because you're like, well, they are screwed now. They they ate the apple and there's promised death and you're like, it's not gonna be good. And so they hear the sounds of Yahweh God walking about in the garden and subsequently they hear his voice calling to them. Far from gaining wisdom, having their eyes enlightened and open, they hide as if you can hide from creator God. Fear dominates and then the question, it's a searching question now from Yahweh, which is, where are you? I, I know you're here, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's a penetrating, is where are you? And I, there's a transition to poetry to just mark the gravity of Yahweh's words and as the poetry captures the, the level of curses that we've already uh, mentioned, the curses that are listed. And this life then, on your own terms, is a curse, not a blessing. And though they are prepared and the listener is prepared for annihilation, and yet they don't die immediately anyway. And actually God does a better job than their self-soothing fig leaf outfits and he gives them a proper skin garment, a clothing. There is care given to them in that moment, but they can't be in Eden, the place of God's intimate presence. For that they are banished and in their exiled exiled to the east. But we do have an indication Here amongst the thorns and the thistles, a victory over this talking snake, the serpent, will be won. Because one of the curses is not directed at the humans, but it's directed at the serpent. It says, you have it coming. (laughs) Because one day an offspring will crush your head and you will only strike his heel. It doesn't say only, I added that. It says, one day an offspring will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And theologians refer to this as the proto evangelium which is the, meaning, it means the first gospel. The time that this, this, there's a turnaround where this curse will be lifted. And it's the first good news that we find mentioned here that the curse will be undone you have it coming, that there will be a victory won as well as a comfort of the clothing. It looked as if all all was lost, that they were going to be left to their own self-destruction, except the pattern needed to be, but would be broken by one who would come who is known as the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who would later be termed and designated as the second Adam, the one who would come, he would be tempted, but he wouldn't succumb. He would hold and faithfully um, say the words of God at the right moment and time. He would faithfully proclaim the words of God. In his weakest moment, he will not just see and take, but in the garden he say, Father, yet not my will be done, but yours. And he would take on the curse, on the curse of death on a tree, Calvary, And passing all of the blessing that he deserved, he absorbed the curse and he passed all the blessing graciously onto humanity and, and, and just says, come. Come back to the, to the tree, which is the Eden, which is the place of intimacy. Come back, not based on anything you can do, but come back and feast freely because I have done it. And you could get all technical about that if you want, but he's saying, all is not lost. You may feel you've screwed up your life exponentially. You fall into the same patterns week by week, but that just means look again at Christ because with him, look at his mercy. Look at his persistent love, his boundless love for humanity. He offers grace at the cross time and time again. As the perfect one and he just invites us to this whole economy of grace and it's in this context I want to just our pra- practices not golf shows three practices that we need because we will fail in the week that lies ahead in this fallen world We need these things in order not to earn God's right, but in order to feast and to return and gather round the tree of life, to gather round God's presence, to stand in his goodness, to to be drawn back to the the, the gravity of his love that's just constantly, even if your heart's here tonight and you just don't know if you can be bothered, you're making decisions where you're walking away and, and we'll never know, but what you need to know is God is moving towards you still in Christ. And even if you're sitting here with the nicest smile and in your heart, you have no desire to do, and you need to know God is pursuing you because he is gracious and he is kind. And if you can't be bothered, he can. It's under that grace that these practices come to life and we need. And they are confession, lament, and presence. Confession. There's examples of this in the book of Daniel if you want a corporate prayer of confession or there's examples in the Psalms, Psalm 51 of a more private, personal um, form of prayer. But confession, we, this is something we need to do. My, one of my friends I heard a, a preach a sermon on the sabbatical and I just like the way he described confession. Confession, he says, is, this, is putting your worst foot forward before God in prayer putting your worst foot forward. I like that. Church so often can be about, oh, I need to put my best foot forward. And, and actually, he said, no, no, no. Renewal happens in this place of a confession. And confession is, we put our worst foot forward before God in prayer and say, God, I'll, I'll, if we don't have that shot, we, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble in the fallen world. But it's, it's, it's not a confession that's like laden with if you're heavy in guilt. And some spiritual writers talk about grace guilt, and we need to know the difference. There's guilt that just condemns, and and, and I worry about that. People who grow up in church, it's just like the voice of God is their maybe a parental voice they hammer down into, the, and and that's, that's that's not God. God's a grace guilt that leads you to hope. But it's a place where you come in and confession. And we're going to do that one in a second. The second is, practice we need is lament, which is for some the language of, of protest, honest protest. Psalm 13 is a really good example. The sort of move in prayer that says, God, this world's not right. Uh, we need to speak, we need to act, we need to, we, you need to have your protest voice, you need to have your lament voice if you just are going to survive in this broken world. If you think it's just about dialing down and saying nice things all the time about God and just hoping things will get better, we're going to struggle. We need to find our voice of lament, which for some needs to be a voice of protest, active protest about the injustices of this world. And thirdly, the practice of presence, presence in the darkness. It's the incarnation that we'll be celebrating in a couple of months that connects the doctrines of creation and redemption. It's the idea that of God coming close and coming near And one of the things we cannot do in a broken world in a difficult time is to remove our presence. One of the things we cannot do as a Christian response in fallen situations is just remove ourselves from the situation. The Christian response is to be present in the darkness and hold out hope. And we need to have that in our locker if we're going to survive in a broken world. But let's now go to the first practice together in confession together. As we anticipate walking out these doors into a broken world. As we anticipate our own propensity. As we anticipate the people we have to work with, with their propensities. As we anticipate stumbling, hurting people who are going to hurt us. We'll come and put our... If it has to be our worst foot forward, our honest selves before God in prayer, let's pray together. Come Holy Spirit of God and search our hearts with the light of Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ said, the first commandment is this. Hear Oh, hero church, the Lord our God is the only Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Lord have mercy. In the silence, just reflect on whatever the Spirit is leading you, but do so hearing the invitation again of Jesus to clothe us in his righteousness before we pray this prayer. Come, let us return to the Lord and say, Lord our God, in our sin, we have avoided your call. Our love for you is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Have mercy on us. Deliver us from judgment. Bind up our wounds and revive us in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Spirit of God, would you grace us with your presence in the depths of our being when all has felt lost and all feels defeated as we head back to the same old situations. You've already clothed us and you've already won. Help us to hold that paradox together as we run to you not away from you.